Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you doing? Hi Carrie, I am here with actually an imaginary mince pie this year (laughs) (laughs) because I had to work right to the wire tonight, but it is delicious. I can smell the butter in the pastry, the stuff inside tastes of whatever mince tastes of, which I'm still, you know, not quite clear on, but it's delicious. And I'm staring out at a dark, dark, dark night. (laughs) (laughs) Trying not to mind. How about you? How are you? Well, I'm also eating an imaginary mince pie, which is great because I think it probably tastes better than an actual mince pie, (laughs) which has never been my favorite Christmas treat, I'm afraid. What's your favorite Christmas treat? Mm, um, I love stolen, actually. (gasps) Oh, yeah. Good shout. And I'm a big fan of gingerbread and eggnog. I eggnog remains a completely baffling mystery to me. What a weird texture, truly. <laughs> I don't know if I'm okay with it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so rich. It's so sugary. Mm-mm-mm. Gingerbread though, big, big thumbs up for gingerbread. Great. Oh, maybe I'll make some this year. Ooh. <laughs> so it's our last literary friction of 2022, which means as usual, we're making this our year in review show where we're going to look back over some of our favorite reads from 2022. We're going to gently and lovingly revisit our 2021 reading resolutions, which I'm already feeling a bit nervous about. And we're going to give some new resolutions for the year ahead. Also, we're going to look forward to some of the books we really can't wait to read in 2023. So it's going to be jam packed. Yes, we are going to be giving you a big list of books today. So if you need some inspiration for what books to buy people, especially Uncle Joe for Christmas, or whatever holiday you Good will be old celebrating. Uncle Joe. Yes, I wanted to throw him in there. <laughs> yeah, recurring character, Uncle Joe. <laughs> yeah, so listen closely. Um, and our annual reminder to support your local independent bookshop, whatever bookshop you love near you that is independent, or head over to bookshop.org where we'll be posting a list of all the books we discussed today. That's right. And also, if you would like to support the show, You can do so by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash lit friction, where you will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month and get the chance to suggest themes for us to talk about. We've had some really, really fun Patreon episodes lately, including ones about interiors in literature and also coming-of-age books. So um, head over there if that sounds good. We also want to say a massive, massive thank you to Picador for sponsoring us for the last two years. We are now looking for a new sponsor to start working with next year. So if this might be you, please get in touch with us at litfriction at gmail.com. Okay, I think that is all the business to get out of the way. Is that right, Carrie? Should we talk about some books? Let's talk about some books. So for our first segment today, we're going to talk about our favorite books that we read in 2022. As usual, our list will be mostly books that were published in 2022, but we are not limiting it to that because we want to tell you about all the books we read, even if they weren't just published. So how was your year in reading, Octavia? Because 
mine was very uneven. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I relate to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, I mean, as always to prep for the show, I listened to last year's show. And as always, it was very interesting and confronting in some ways to listen because we talked about how hard it was to read during lockdowns in 2021. And, you know, I think we were both really hopeful that once we were sort of more in the world that we could return to a normal reading schedule. Um, And indeed in 2022, it wasn't totally normal, but we weren't in lockdowns as much and I was definitely out more. Although we did both have COVID for a long stretch at the beginning of the year. (laughs) Yeah, which sucked. Yeah, that was terrible. I kind of forgot about it and now I'm forcing myself to remember. But anyway, you'd think things would have gotten better, but actually looking back, I read less in 2022 <gasps> than I did in 2020 and 2021. What Can you a believe that? Karen, I know clear. it's very upsetting. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what? That echoes larger reading trends, um, at least from what we see in the industry, which is that book buying and borrowing went way up in 2020 and 2021, and it's it's dropped again. Um, and you know, that's a combination of factors, one of which of course, the cost of living and people don't feel that they can buy as much, but I think it's also that people are just out and about and, you know, I was out and about, so I'm cutting myself some slack. I read some great books. I had some great bursts of reading on, on holiday, but then there were whole stretches where I just didn't read at all. Yeah. I don't know. What about you? Well, my first confession is that when I scrambled around to find my reading list, which, you know, was a resolution from a few years ago and we talked about last year, I actually found that I stopped filling it in basically immediately after our year in review show last year. (laughs) (laughs) It was just crickets from there on in. So I scrambled around for a pen and I hastily tried to write down all of the books I read this year. But I know I missed loads of things off and they're not in order. And yeah, so... You could say that my reading year was uneven too. You could say that my conception of my reading year is also uneven. Like I really (laughs) kind of have no idea. And as you say, like it was definitely not helped by by having COVID, which ah, completely ruined my brain and left me feeling very incapable for a while afterwards. But I think also for me, it was partly because I spent a lot of this year writing my own book, which had a really interesting effect on my reading choices. I never thought I would be the kind of writer who needs to not read other work while I'm writing. And I wasn't, but it meant that I read quite a lot more memoirs than normal because I was interested in learning a bit more about the form while I was working. And one of the things that was a real challenge throughout the course of writing the book was, uh, and it, it kind of was a very steep learning curve for me as a writer, rather than as a writer of academic work, but as a, as a kind of non-academic writer, was learning how to hold the narrative voice of the book steady throughout this whole like seven chapters. So I actually found myself shying away from reading things that felt too close thematically or that had a really dominant narrative voice in case I kind of absorbed them, you know? And I think there Mm. is that anxiety that I'm a massive sponge as I read it. It's one of the, the things I love about reading and writing, but it felt very important to be a bit careful with that. John Keats also had that problem. Really? Yeah, he was a great mimic and didn't love reading other poets when he was writing poetry because he would just adopt their style. Yeah, so, yeah, right. you're in good company. Yeah, it's. I think it's a really interesting sort of feature of of the profession, I suppose. But you don't want to you don't want to do it too much, and you definitely don't want to do it unconsciously. But I also think because I spent so much of my time sitting down writing 
alone. And then also the reading I always have to do for work. I found that actually in my pleasure time, I did not want to sit and read. (laughs) I wanted to be up and about and outside and with friends, or I wanted to be watching movies or TV and just getting out of the practice. Because I think I found even more than normal when I'm writing, when I was writing the book, reading felt like a bit of a busman's holiday, actually. So I also think I read less for pleasure than I normally do. So that's interesting. Well, um, what two perfect people we are to now recommend books to <laughs> from the last year to everyone. That's right. That's you and me, baby. <laughs> well, should we use that as a segue into our very non-exhaustive list? Of, I'm just going to uh, take a bite of my imaginary mint pie before we move <laughs> ahead. <laughs> but yes, perfect segue. What's your first book that you recommend? Well, this is actually a great place to start because this is a book I came to when I was feeling stuck in my own writing and it blew open a path out of the stuckness, but it also made me feel really, really excited about memoir as a form again and like what it what it's capable of and what it can do. It's called Bodywork, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative by Melissa Fibos and it was published in 2022. So it was published this year and I recommended it on the show at the time of reading it, but I really, really want to come back to it now because she's such a great writer. It's a very short book and it's kind of a masterclass kind of a mini memoir in itself about the practice of writing from your own life. Um, But it's not only going to be interesting to people who are writing a memoir, it's really anyone who likes reading, anyone who thinks about narrative and storytelling should read this book. And what I love about Phoebus's writing so much is she's political, she's intellectual, she's also totally accessible. Like reading it feels very much like a combination of taking a really brilliant class and having a conversation with a really smart friend, you know, at the same time. And so she kind of gets into how we write about our intimate lives. She gets into the experience of how that writing is actually received. There's an essay in there about writing that gets dismissed as navel gazing or hailed as brave. Both of these are things that maybe aren't great, actually, when you're the writer in question. What do they actually mean? How are they politically loaded? Um, so yeah, it's it's great. And it's one I've gone back to a few times since I first read it. And I know I will return to it again in future. I remember you recommending it and I really wanted to read it then and I really want to read it now. I love books that are reflections on writing always. As yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I she's she's cracking. Really great writer. What's yours? Well, my first recommendation is The Love Songs of W. E. B. Du Bois by Honoré yeah. Fanon Jeffers, who we had on the show back in January when it was published. And I read it at the beginning of the year. And, you know, it started my year on the best possible note that it could be started on because This is a very long book, and it's about so many things, not least the entire history of America, but it never (laughs) lost me, not for a single minute. So in brief, it's the story of Ailey Pearl Garfield, who is a young Black woman growing up in the late 20th century between a northern city and a small southern town. But it's also interspersed with these songs, which tell the stories of Ailey's ancestors in Georgia which stretches back all the way to indigenous Creek people and plantation slaves. And as you might be able to tell from that summary, this novel reckons with race and slavery and trauma in a big and revelatory and sensitive way. But it is also, and we really spoke to her about this in the interview, so full of joy and love and family and 
forgiveness and kindness. And it feels like it contains everything. It, it felt like, I don't know, it, it's so ambitious and it's so exciting to read and it has so much to say about America. And I love the experience of reading it, partially because I just felt so much, but I also learned so much. And I was so thankful to have to read this novel because I don't know if I would have embarked upon the experience of reading an 800-page novel in early January otherwise. But (laughs) (laughs) it was really, I was so glad I did. So please, if you've been thinking about it, if you've been daunted by the length, dive in and see what you think. I don't think you'll regret it. Yeah, seconded. I still think about those characters today. Really, they live, they live inside me. It's a phenomenal work. What's your next? So the next one I want to talk about is also a massive book. Um, It's, I think, 700 pages or more. And it's called Our Share of Night by the Argentine writer Mariana Enriquez and translated by Megan McDowell. It absolutely blew me away. It is a massive book and a massive story, but kind of like what you were saying, at no point did it feel too long or feel like it lagged. Like I was genuinely gripped from start to finish. And this is an extremely gripping book because it's a horror story. (laughs) So it messes with you. Um, And I don't know, I don't necessarily find myself drawn to horror, but it absolutely had me. I actually had nightmares twice, which is kind of wild when you think about it. This book like got into my subconscious like that and ferreted around in there. Yeah, genuinely. I mean, there are some scenes in it that are extremely gruesome. I would say if you're squeamish, be mindful of that. But there is so much else in this novel. So it's kind of a supernatural horror story, but it's also set against the very real horrors from the really not very distant past in Argentina when it was ruled by a violent military dictatorship and the aftermath of this dictatorship. But I think, you know, the bits that I found the most powerful was the fact that it's really at its heart a story about a father and a son who have this very complicated relationship, which is full of love, but it's also full of power struggle. Um, There's a lot of illness and having to care for a sick parent. There's a lot about heredity and lineage and colonial histories really, really messed up power dynamics. But then there's also all this light in there. There's wonderful stories of friendship. There's also some amazing, passionate, sensual sexuality. She writes sex so, so brilliantly. And I think that it's a book that really manages to balance the kind of bodily elements of horror with the bodily elements of pleasure. So you never feel brutalized by it, even though it is in places really, really brutal. Sounds great. And I've heard her short story collection, The Dangerous of Smoking in Bed, is amazing as well. Yeah, that's what I'm going to get to next, I think. What's your second one? My second one is Either Or by Elif Batuman. Oh, yes. (laughs) Another author we featured on the show. And I promise I did actually read books outside of the authors we featured on the show. But I think we were just lucky to feature so many amazing authors in 2022. Sorry. Yeah, we had a good year. I feel we had a good year. But I chose this novel because it made me laugh more than anything else I read last year. And God knows we need a laugh right now. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So it's narrated in this very distinctive voice by Selin, a Turkish-American girl in her second year at Harvard University. And her story follows the same rough trajectory of Batman's own. But we see Selin as she moves through the year studying literature, trying to connect the things that she reads in books to the things she observes and, and the things she does in life. And as you might be able to tell from that description, in in a kind of sense of maybe traditional plot, not a lot happens. 
But in other ways, so much happens in terms of Selin's intellectual, spiritual, and sexual development. So it's really gripping in that way, in a kind of psychological way rather than a plot way. But to return to the humor, what makes it so funny on every page is that Selin is really naive in a lot of ways and <laughs> she questions everything. So her observational eye is, is always making the familiar strange and especially the weird things that college kids do. And it's just hilarious. Um, it's, it's, it's really great. It's, it makes you question everything. And especially in this book, a lot of the questioning has to do with what literature and especially classical literature really has to do with how we live and how we live our lives. And it's very confronting, especially for someone like me who loves literature. So, you know, read it for a, a really bracing psychological experience, but also an amazing laugh. Agreed. I absolutely loved that novel. Loved it. And like you literally laughed out loud, which is quite rare, actually, I find when yeah, I'm reading. Yeah. I hardly ever laugh out loud, but I, I was, embarrassingly so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> constantly. Um, what's your third recommendation? Mine is uh, actually another one that we had on the show, which really oh, makes yeah. me feel like we're cheating, but <laughs> <laughs> it was so great. It's The Inseparables by Simone mm. de Beauvoir, which was translated by Lauren Elkin, um, who we spoke to on the show. We also, if you haven't heard, that episode did a seance with Simone and she said loads of great stuff. So I really recommend going back to listen. <laughs> but anyway, the French text of this novel was written in 1954, but it was never published in Simone de Beauvoir's lifetime because, as Lauren told us in our interview with her, Sartre said it wasn't very good, which is frankly a real dick move because it is a great, great little novel. And I think just a really excellent reminder not to let one guy's opinion hold you back <laughs> if you're making art of any kind, um, because what does he know? But anyway, I don't want to get into it too, too much because, you know, we did have it on the show quite recently, but it was another book that arrived as a real palate cleanser for me in my reading year. It's about a passionate teenage friendship between two girls and it maps pretty directly onto a relationship from de Beauvoir's real life that was very um, sort of foundational for her and sh shaped her very profoundly in the way that those early friendships really, really can. And I loved it. It made me reflect on the comparable relationships from my own life and, you know, the ones that have survived into adulthood, the ones that didn't survive, it were very firmly into our adulthood at this stage. So it's it's quite exciting to think about relationships that have lasted for 30 years almost and ones that haven't. But the thing about this book that I still find myself thinking of is de Beauvoir's writing is so pared back, but that doesn't mean it lacks passion. It kind of enhances the passion mm. because it's so intense. The intensity is so stark. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And I really, I feel the book, I feel I sort of carry it within me like this white hot intensity. And I think Lauren's translation makes the whole story feel really fresh and really contemporary, even though it's set, you know, years ago. Um, so yeah, if you're stuck in a bit of a reading rut or you want to get a book for someone who maybe hasn't read anything they've loved for a while, I think this is a really great short, sharp shock, you know, to get you back into it. Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful description of the writing and also the effect the book had on me too. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. 
Well, my third one is similarly a book that felt like a shock, <laughs> maybe in a different way. It's I'm a Fan by Sheena Patel. Oh, I'm so glad. Mm. I'm so glad you're including this one because I wanted to. <laughs> yes, and another author, sadly, we featured on Literary Fiction. This is just becoming an advertisement for our podcast, which was really not the intent. Hey guys, but... have you heard of this really great podcast called Literary Fiction? It's an uh, <laughs> absolute so banger. <laughs> It's Christmas, Carrie. I'm allowed to be dorky. <laughs> I'm transitioning into my dorky phase or chuggy phase, as the youths would I call love it. Your chuggy phase. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you were already there a while ago, but ouch! No, you weren't. You're you're very cool. No, no, no. Let's not pretend. <laughs> <laughs> but this is yeah. It's another first person narrator, um, which seemed to really attract me in this last year. I, I should interrogate that. But anyway, um, this narrator is unnamed. The book is about her obsession with a man, but more particularly with the influencer that this man is also sleeping with and cheating on his partner with. And it's about Instagram. It's about anger. It's about social media. It's about power. It's about race. It's messy. It's angry. But it's also so funny and so controlled at the same time. And... I don't know, it it made me really excited about what fiction can do. And it felt genuinely at the vanguard of writing. And I was so glad that I read it and I was so glad to speak to Sheena. And I was also so glad to have the really cool cloth bound edition that Rough Trade Books um, with just the word, it's purple with the red kind of foil words, I'm a fan on it. And it's perfect. So if you want to buy a Christmas present for somebody that's going to change them, but also look really great on their shelves, I'm a fan by Sheena Patel. It fits perfectly into a stocking. Seconded. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? What's your last? My last one is very different. Uh, It's a book that set my brain on fire. It's called Staying with the Trouble by Donna Haraway, which was published in 2016 And it's theory, so it's if you don't like theory, you won't like it. But it is theory as poetics and also just generally lighter fuel for the brain if you are into that kind of thing. Haraway is a feminist theorist, or even actually I think she calls herself these days a multi-species feminist theorist, which is kind of crucial to the thesis of this book. But I picked this book up basically after an old reading resolution. I can't remember if it was last year to engage more deeply with books about or that dealt with climate catastrophe. So this is basically a provocative thesis about how we can reconfigure our relationship to the earth and what Haraway calls all the critters that live on it. And she uses this language very carefully because her whole thing is about getting rid of the hierarchy between the different creatures on the earth and recognizing that actually, if we're going to survive, we need to become kin with one another. We need to create new ways of relating to each other and not see uh, humans as on top of a pyramid, you know? And, you know, it's it's like, it's theory. So sometimes it goes completely bananas into a wordplay, um, but sometimes it's really impassioned and phenomenal. The chapters are very playful as well as being erudite. I mean, there are moments where I laughed out loud and I don't think I was meant to, where she kind of descends into this almost like Gertrude Stein-esque play with language, which is something I personally really, I really enjoy, but I know it really turns some people off about theory. But I just find the pages of this book just fizz with ideas and links and kind of 
weird connections, but also this really wry sense of humor. She doesn't take herself too seriously, Haraway, and it's one of the reasons I love her writing. But there is also underlying it all this really intense urgency, which is absolutely necessary in this kind of topic. I think, you know, I want to make it clear, like the whole idea of staying with the trouble, the title of the book is essentially the opposite to Jenny Offal's phrase, the twilight knowing, which we talk about a lot. This is kind of the the counterpoint to anyone who still is in that twilight knowing. This is a book full of really bold, sometimes completely bonkers, but very original ideas about how we stay with the trouble of a reality that we want to keep avoiding, but we really, really need to not avoid any longer. Um, I mean, I was joking to a friend who, who recommended it to me, actually, that Haraway is basically my favorite stoner philosopher. Like there are passages in this book where you can almost hear her dragging on a massive spliff as she reels off several paragraphs on like string figures and carrier pigeons. And I don't mean to say (laughs) that I think that Haraway is high when she's writing. I have no idea if Donna Haraway gets high. But what I love about her is her thinking just stretches beyond the known in so many wild ways. Like she is a truly, truly original thinker and original writer. Um, And for that alone, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, I would like to hear you narrate it to me in a kind of high philosopher voice. Baby, that's Could a we Christmas do that? present. <laughs> yes, you bet. I will record it on a WhatsApp voice note. It will be a, like 14 hours long WhatsApp Great. voice Excellent. note. <laughs> I'll listen to it as I go to bed. Yeah, perfect. What is your last one? My last one is interestingly also a book that engages with the climate crisis. It's Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin, which is translated by Megan McDowell, who I think also translated the Mariana Enriquez, That's right. right? Yeah, she's, she Very does cool. a lot of phenomenal um, Spanish language into English translation. Yeah. So Samantha Schweblin is an Argentinian writer. This was published in 2017. And I've been meaning to read it since Jenny Offal recommended it on our show in 2020. But I finally picked it up. It's a very, very short novella. And I read it in almost one sitting on the beach in France. And um, it was, in a way, the most improper setting for this novel, which is one of the eeriest novels I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also, it's so sharply written. It is so intriguing. And it is so filled with the most provocative images that I still think about to this day. So uh, to explain it, it's told as a dialogue between a woman named Amanda who is deathly ill and she's in a clinic and she's in bed. We know she's far away from home. And uh, the person she's talking to is this young boy named David who sits at the foot of her bed. And from the start, it's not really clear whether she's hallucinating David or not, but he is asking her to recount the events of the last few days to find out what happens to her. And that sounds confusing, and it is in some ways, but the mystery of this novella unfolds in the most satisfying way and in a way that both gives answers but withholds easy conclusions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't want to give away too much, which is why I'm being a bit vague, but as I said, it's intimately concerned with how humans shape and destroy nature in the climate crisis. And she just, she strikes me as an extremely original mind. And I really want to read more of her work because this felt like a, I was dunked into cold water. Ooh, I want to read it. Her name is one that has come up again and again. And I, yeah, I'm dying to read her, her writing. 
Great. So very quickly, do you want to take me through your honorable mentions? I would absolutely love to. So top of the list, Still Life by Sarah Winman, which I actually first read last year, but I went back to this year several times because I needed some respite. And it is just the most beautifully kind and generous novel and perfect escapism when you're living in the grimmest timeline. (laughs) The second was a novel called The Candy House by Jennifer Egan, which was the follow-up to her smash hit, A Visit from the Goon Squad, much, much anticipated. And I just finished listening to it on audiobook and it was fantastic. Each chapter is told in a different voice and they were all read by different actors. And all I'll say is it's basically about now and it's about the future and it's great, really great. And my last is a non-fiction book, which I loved reading last year called How to Read Now by Elaine Castillo. Um, it's a fantastic, strident book of essays about the politics of reading. And it's really smart, but it's also really funny, intensely readable, challenging in all the right ways. I would say essential reading for anyone who likes to read. I'm giving it to loads and loads of people for Christmas, including all my nieces and nephews. So, I mean, they're young adults, they're not children. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Um, yeah, I, Sarah Winman was going to be one of mine. As you know, I listened to the audiobook, but I think I literally bring it up on every episode of Literary Friction. So I was <laughs> glad you mentioned it. <laughs> Between the two of us, we've got the base covered of still life. I know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, my first is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, um, who we also featured on the show. This is a book I could not stop reading, beautifully realized relationships, and which made me genuinely interested in video games. So um, if if you're hesitating, a couple of people have said to me, I'm hesitating on this one, because I'm not sure I'm interested in video games and it will make you interested. So pick so it up. Listen to that. I would say, are you interested in like the peasants of Russia and like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, everyone reads books about stuff that they don't know whether they're interested or not. You know, yes, you're right. They're being biased towards video games. Exactly. They're being snobby. Don't be snobby. <laughs> <laughs> My next is um, Allison by Lizzie Stewart, another author we featured on the show. Um, that was, it was published by Serpent's Tale in 2022. And this is a beautiful graphic novel about making art in the span of a single life. And it is devastatingly, quietly beautiful. Agreed. I loved it. And then finally, I want to recommend Man's Search for Meeting by Victor E. Frankel, which was published in 1946, not 2022. Um, this is a very classic memoir about one man's survival in the Holocaust death camps and the psychological technique he developed from the observations of people's reactions to that extreme torture and it's it's a very hopeful book it it feels a little old-fashioned in some ways but I think it still has very important lessons to teach us and I was really glad I picked it up yeah it sounded really profound This episode is sponsored by Picador. In keeping with the theme of this month's Year in Review episode, we thought we'd take the time to look back on our favorite Picador books of 2022. Octavia, do you want to start with your top pick? I would love to. Mine is the cult classic Nevada by Imogen Binney, which was published in the UK for the first time this year by Picador. And listeners of the show will have heard me talk about it before, but you're going to listen to me talk about it again because it's such a great novel. Tells the story of Maria, a trans woman verging on 30, who embarks on a drug-fueled version of the great American road trip after losing her job in a Brooklyn bookshop being dumped by her girlfriend and then stealing her girlfriend's car. Along the way, Maria stops in Reno, Nevada, where she meets James, an aimless stoner working in the local Walmart. 
Maria sees something of her younger self in James and the pair quickly form an unlikely but powerful connection, one that will have big implications for them both. Tori Peters, author of Detransition Baby, has said Nevada is the book that launched the trans writing scene and that changed my own life. And Andrea Lawler, author of another Picador favorite, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, has called Nevada's heroine Maria an unforgettable new archetype, the quintessential late 20s punk rock trans girl blowing up her life. Hilarious, whip-smart, truly groundbreaking, and totally punk, this is a book to go straight to your festive reading piles. Originally published in 2013 by Topside Press, Nevada was published for this year by Picador as part of their new collection of era-defining modern classics, the Picador Collection, available to purchase now. Don't sleep on it. My favorite Picador title that published this year is Lost and Found by Katherine Schultz. A few years ago, Katherine Schultz wrote an article for The New Yorker, where she is a staff writer, entitled When Things Go Missing, which explored the various meanings of loss, from losing one's keys to her experience of losing her father. In Lost and Found, she explores how loss and discovery exist in dialogue with each other, how just 18 months before her father died, Catherine would meet the woman she would marry. An exploration of the nature of loss and grief, but also joy and discovery, moving between the philosophical and the deeply intimate. Lost and Found is a meditation on human connection, how all our lives are shaped by loss and discovery. A book to reread, to gift, and be cherished. Lost and Found will speak to anyone who has ever been in love, lost a loved one, and to anyone who has experienced the maddening disappearance of everyday items. So pretty much all of us. <laughs> Catherine has received praise from writers like Helen McDonald, Gia Tolentino, and Marilyn Robinson, to name just a few of my favorite writers. <laughs> <laughs> the Sunday Times called Lost and Found an extraordinary book. And Vogue has described it as a lively exploration of some of the strongest emotions we humans have the luck to feel and a wondrous look at how they work in tandem. Lost and Found is available in paperback next month, but you can pick up the hardback in time for Christmas and Uncle Joe's stocking now from your local indie bookshop or bookshop.org. Please read it. It moved me in ways I didn't know I could be moved. Lucky Uncle Joe. Okay, now we're on to the segment where we very gently revisit our reading resolutions from last year and take stock of how we did. How did you do, Octavia? I did medium. (laughs) (laughs) Is that even true? I don't know. Shall we find out? Let's find out. What What was your first resolution? My first and extremely optimistic resolution was to read in less of a hurry, which... I did not do. No, you didn't. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing a little bit about your reading schedule this year. I did not. I did not. I did not. And I hate it and I want to change it and I don't know how to change it, but I read everything under, you know, really strict, tight deadlines. And um, I don't know, there's things to be said for it because it does mean that I often find ways or have to read whole books um, almost at once, you know, um, which is a really intense way to live inside an author's world and an author's voice. Also, 
it means that I don't get to savor it in the way that I would like to often. So it's, you know, there are pros and cons to it, but yeah, I, I really, really wanted it to be the case. And it was absolutely categorically not the case in any way. So that's, I'm going to carry that resolution over to next year, actually. Okay. I, I, that's cool. Hold me to it. I, I might not. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, I need you to stand over me at all times. <laughs> What about you? What was your first one? Well, my first one was read more nonfiction and I'm giving myself half points on this. So I did read a decent amount of memoirs, actually. Um, Catherine Schultz's Lost and Found. I, I read some of Rachel Cusk's A Life's Work, although I gave up on that. I read Amy, <laughs> Amy Liptrot's The Instant. I read this fabulous memoir called This Ragged Great by oh someone called Octavia Bright. No, it's a, it is amazing. But um, <laughs> that wasn't really what I meant when I said nonfiction. What I really meant was I want to read more books that are, you know, contemporary history, science, political books. And so I didn't totally fail. But unfortunately for my pleasure reads, I once again mainly sought out fiction, which is the thing that gives me comfort. And I always feel a little bit bad about this because I do read nonfiction for work, but it's often like, I'll read the first few chapters of something to get a sense of what it's like, you know, to compare it to the books I'm reading. And of course I read my author's books, but it feels like work. But I'm actually choosing to think of this as maybe a good thing. You know, like work is a lot of nonfiction, but I can truly step out of work and read fiction sometimes. And that, and that's a really wonderful thing. Yeah, I agree totally. I think you can give yourself more than half points on that. Okay. Thank you. That's really nice of you. <laughs> um, what was your next resolution? My next one was to read more outside of the current publishing cycle, which I did manage and I loved, loved, loved it. It was wonderful. And it made me realize that, you know, when your reading is really shaped and governed by what's being published at the time, you kind of can't help but get sucked into certain industry trends, you know, and it means that the the lens of your gaze is being shaped by the machinery of an industry. And I think it's really, really good to break out of that. Um, and, you know, you, I used to read much less in, in that way, but because so much of my work includes reading that ties me to the current publishing cycle, um, I've sort of been dragged in that direction. And I'm not saying not to read stuff that's part of the current cycle. It's more just that I, I'd lost some balance. And I think as a writer, especially rather than as a reader, I really need to make sure I have that balance because there are certain things, certain ways, um, forms of expression that go in and out of style, I think, in the ways that people write. And if you really want to have a, a richly informed voice as a writer, you need to be reading old stuff, new stuff, everything in between. So, you know, I, that's more, I don't want to be absolutist about it at all, but I just want to keep an eye on it because it's easy to forget for me. Mm. What's your next? My next resolution was to listen to more audiobooks. Hey, and I actually I'm did this. you 100 points for this. Yeah, I did. Knock this one out of the park, Carrie Plitt. I know. I sort of, I, as I mentioned last year, I knew that would it would be the case because I just started getting into them at the end of the year. But I'm really glad to say I continued the trend. And 2022 was Carrie's big year of audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> So regular listeners to the show will know how much I enjoyed listening to Still Life by Sarah Winman, <laughs> read beautifully by the author, but also Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Those were two of my highlights. Um, 
I did have some false starts, which I just think is the case with audiobooks. Oh, I could definitely. not get into Rebecca Hall reading A Room with a View, which I've been meaning to read forever. And she's an amazing actress, but I just couldn't follow the story. I couldn't understand what was going on. Mm. And um, Cassandra at the Wedding, which so many people have been reading recently. And I just felt a bit unmoored as I was listening to it. I wasn't, I don't know, it's so interesting. And I think it had something to do with the narrator. I like couldn't feel the shape of the book, which is so important to me, even when I'm listening. But anyway, I persevered and I listened to some great things. And, you know, it just, it gives you a different experience of a book, but it's wonderful to, to, to listen aloud and also to, to do something like gardening and also be listening to a book. It's, it's a real game changer. So thank you for making me do it. And I'm looking forward to many audiobooks in the future. My pleasure. My gift to you. And never more will there be teasing about my old school love for Book at Bedtime. I think there might still be teasing about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are these like weird abridged books. All right. <laughs> Um, but yes, if if our listeners, I want to put the call out again. If there's an audiobook that you've really loved recently, especially if you thought the narration was excellent, please let us know because we're both yes. always looking for recommendations. Definitely. What was your next resolution? Well, this one makes me laugh. My next one was read more first thing in the morning or before bed, even if, if it's just a few pages. And obviously I didn't do this in the way I meant I would do it. I did it, but I only did it as part of my incredibly hurried reading <laughs> where my alarm goes off at 6am. I roll over, I pick up the book that's on the floor that I was reading until three in the morning the night before. And I bring it back into bed with me and I read it for three hours straight. So that's not what I meant. So I'm not giving myself any points. It, this was an epic fail of a resolution. And it's one that I still, I still really want to, uh, I want to achieve. I want to, I want to have a habit of where I'm reading books that are not my work reading at the start and the end of every day. Um, yeah. And I will get there. I will. My last resolution was actually the same as yours, um, which was reading before bed in particular. I really can't read in the morning and I'm not going to pretend that's available to me as an option. But when I was a kid, I used to read before bed every night. Yeah, same. And I don't do it anymore. And I really think it's screens. You know, I, I will often bring my laptop to bed and watch a show or scroll through my phone and I don't like it. Um, and I want to stop. So and I, and I love reading before bed. It's such a wonderful, pleasurable experience. But I realized that what was happening is even when I was trying to read before bed, I would start it too late and I would read like a page and then fall asleep. And it was really unsatisfying. So I didn't really achieve this. Um, and I want to roll it over. And I think the way that I can make it start working for me is first of all, to leave my phone and laptop outside of the bedroom, but also to go to bed earlier. Yeah. You have to, it's, it has to be more intentional. But those are like big habit changing resolutions that I'm probably not going to achieve. Step by step, step by step. <laughs> so should we move on to our hopeful reading resolutions for 2023 that we probably won't keep? Yes. Um, <laughs> this must be so fun for our listeners every year. <laughs> hey, we both kept one of our resolutions. Yes, that's true. And I hope that our total failure to keep our resolutions makes you feel very held and seen in your similar failures. 
<laughs> which are just the failures of being human, let's be honest. What, what's your first possible failure, Octavia? My first possible failure is to read a couple of the massive nonfiction books on my shelf that have been sitting there for a long time. And this is tied into my desire to want to read for pleasure at the start and end of every day. Basically, a friend of mine gave me a book called The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, um, which was written by a psychiatrist called Ian McGilchrist. And it deals with the specialist hemispheric functioning of the brain. And it sounds so fascinating. It is also massive. It is also emphatically not a book that's designed to be read in a hurry from cover to cover. So I want to find a relationship to this book. And the other one is the book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, which I still haven't read and I've had sitting on my shelf for years. So those are my two. I want to steadily, slowly get into them over the course of a year with no pressure because they both are full of information that I just, I want. I want the information. I just struggle to, uh, to imbibe it. Yeah, I really relate. And in fact, my first resolution is very related. Um, so oh, I'm going to, well, I'm going to keep my nonfiction resolution, but I'm going to try to make it easier for myself because I really do want to read more of the kind of nonfiction that you're talking about. And so I'm going to give myself two books that I'm going to target. To oh my read. God. Great, great, great. We can do this in tandem. Yes. <laughs> So, so the first is um, Malcolm Gaskill's The Ruin of All Witches, which is a historical account of a witch hunt in 1650s New England. And everyone I know who has read it says it reads like a thriller and it's a totally revelatory work of nonfiction. And I would like to read it not just because it's about New England, but because <laughs> I'm always interested in new ways of telling history in particular. And so that is on my list and I really want to read it. The other thing I want to read is Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, which I know you read and everyone says is just one of the best like investigative journalism books that they've read in a long time. Yeah. So those, those are the two books. That's all I'm going to give myself to do in terms of nonfiction. I think you've set yourself up for success more than me because neither of the ones I've chosen read like thrillers or are pacey <laughs> in any way. <laughs> They are massive chunks of information. But yes, I think that's a really good idea. You are going to love Empire of Pain. I want you to text me the entire way through reading it, okay? Okay. That might break my flow, but we'll see how it goes. Fuck your flow, Carrie. I need to know how you feel about every detail of that book. <laughs> What's your second resolution? My second is to read more poetry. I've had a really bad couple of years for reading poetry. And I think if I'm genuinely really honest, it's partly because of having been navigating grief after my father died. And, you know, my emotions have been pretty raw the last couple of years. And poetry is something that, you know, goes right to the core of me and it can really eviscerate me if I'm not careful. So I, I found myself really avoiding it actually, or only taking it in in really small doses. So there's a couple of accounts I follow on Instagram that post daily poems. And I love that because it means I still have poetry in my life, but it's been ages since I kind of sought a, a book of poems out and read it back to back. And um, the thing that broke this, this kind of drought was I had to read a, a poetry collection called Improvised Explosive Device by a poet called R.G. Manuel Pillai for a work gig. And it, it was such a great collection because I had to read it front to back for work. It really actually broke the seal. And it reminded me that, you know, Reading a single poem 
versus reading a whole collection is a bit like listening to a single song versus listening to a whole album. It's not better or worse. It's just a really, really different experience. Mm-hmm. And you have a totally different relationship to the work of art in question. And my friend Billy just gave me a copy of Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head by Wilson Shire, which I am about to start. And I'm I'm just so excited. I feel a bit like I'm about to go on a date with an ex. And <laughs> I like, I'm thrilled. <laughs> I love that. I always say I should read more poetry, but I've kind of even given up making it a real resolution. But I admire that. And also I like that you've given yourself a concrete title as well. I think yeah. that should be our new way of making these resolutions. Because yeah. once you read that, you're done with the resolution. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit backwards about going forward. The resolution cool. life hack. <laughs> What's your next one? So my next one is to read more than one book at once sometimes. And ironically, I think this is one of the things that kept me from reading more in 2022 because I was so determined to finish books, even if they weren't really doing it for me, that I wouldn't read because I felt like I had to read that book and nothing else. And I just need to give up or not even give up, just start something new um, before I finish something else and maybe I can return to it if if I move to do so. But I, it's just not my instinct to do that. And life is too short, you know? I So I really, I want to have a couple books on the go. I used to be really monogamous in my reading habits. I mean, this was a long time ago, apart from when I was reading for my academic work, which of course, you know, you're reading across books all the time. But in my reading for pleasure, I was like kind of maniacally monogamous about it. And I cannot tell you how liberating it was to stop that approach and and actually realize that that's an approach that's kind of instilled in you by this really heteropatriarchal system of education. There there it it is. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) And actually the idea that you should only read one book at a time is kind of absurd. It's kind of absurd. I think that, you know, different books do different things at different times. It doesn't mean that, for me as a writer, for example, I wouldn't be upset if you told me you were reading another book at the same time as my book. Like it's, I think it's a weird attitude that a lot of people have and your life will be better to let go of it. Really, really. I don't know if I totally agree with you in that I'm not sure that my desire to only read one book at a time comes from heteropatriarch, heteropatriarch, I can't even say it, heteropatriarchal <laughs> capitalism. I think it's more that I really like the pure experience of reading a book. Like I really, it feels like my ideal way to read a book is in one sitting, right? To yeah. absorb it all at the same time. And so sometimes when I have a lot of different books on the go, I get kind of confused between them, but maybe it's just practice. Yeah. And maybe if you are only reading novels, right? But like, I think having a rich reading life, you're reading across different kinds of books. And if you're reading a nonfiction book at the same time as a novel, at the same time as a book of poetry, I don't know. I The thing I found when I stopped being like that about it was that, you know, it allows different works to speak to one another through you and within you, and they inform what you find in in, in each of them. And I think it can be really exciting. I also think that that maybe the thing that I'm kind of um, bitching about being part of of this sort of very narrow system is the idea that you have to finish a book just because you started it. Because I think that's nonsense. And I really think you should feel free to abandon books if they don't hold your attention. And as you say, maybe come back to them later if you're moved to. That's, I do that a lot. But I think that 
you don't owe a book or a writer really to finish their book if you aren't gripped by it or if you aren't interested any longer, if it's not holding your attention. I mean, it's complicated because there are also, you know, often in books, I feel like this about my own work, like there's there are weak chapters and you hope that someone will push through the weak chapter to get to the next one, which is better. So it, maybe it is a little bit more complicated than I'm making it sound, but I think it I think it will only open things up if you are less dogmatic with yourself about it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Amen. Amen. <laughs> What's your last resolution? This one is is a funny one. So I'm about to move house and I've been packing up everything and first of all always a horribly emotionally draining and confronting exercise. Um oh God, but also yeah. isn't it? It's, yeah, it's grueling. But it's also made me realize how many books I've held on to, and actually, I have more than normal. And it's partly because of the pandemic, because normally in my life, when people come over, I give people books all the time. I send people home with books, you know. But this year, a lot of my socializing has happened out of the house because, partly because we all wanted to be out because we'd been in our houses for so long because of the pandemic. And also partly because John and I have been camping out a bit here because we moved in just before the pandemic and we sort of haven't completely settled in some ways. And now we're moving. So, you know, we're about to be somewhere more permanent and I am really excited to make it a, a, a social place again. And and through that, to get back into my habit of, of sending people home after they've hung out with a book in their hands, you know, I love it. I love passing them on and like, yeah, I miss it. That's a lovely resolution. Yeah, well, let's hope I manage it. (laughs) What's your last one? My last one is instead of to give away more books, to acquire more books. Oh, hey. (laughs) Well, not not quite, but I it's it's sort of a joint resolution to buy more books from bookshops and to also join my local library. Because a lot of the books I get, I get from people sending them to me through work. Um, And it kind of ties into your resolution to read outside of the current publishing cycle. I just want to be a bit more um, focused in terms of what I choose to read. And I think even going into bookshops was one of your resolutions from a couple of years ago. Yeah. But during the pandemic, I really got out of the habit of going to bookshops and I love going to bookshops. I mean, I love just seeing what they've put out, but I also love being inspired by something or remembering a book that I've always wanted to read, but didn't necessarily have, you know, on the tips of my fingers when I'm online ordering something. So I'm, I really want to do that. Just spend some time in independent bookshops, especially Daunt Summertown, which is an amazing, relatively new bookshop that's opened up near my work and, uh, and just browse and explore and see what comes to me and see what I want to purchase. And then also I, I, it feels kind of shameful that I haven't joined the library in Oxford yet. And I've heard it's really amazing. And I've heard that they have a really amazing selection of books as well. So I, I'm going to join, it's pretty close to my house and I want to go and take some books out of the library and, and again, see what catches my eye. That is a fantastic resolution. And I'm going to piggyback off the back of that because one of the first things I'm going to do when we get to the new neighborhood we're moving to is join the library. Great. Okay. Joint resolution. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Well, we'll be back for our last segment in which we look forward to 2023 and talk about some of the books we can't wait to read. That's right.
All right, now is the time when we talk about the books we're looking forward to reading in 2023. So take it away, Octavia. Can I just pause for a second and say I cannot believe it's about to be 2023. I know, it's, it's, it's three is an upsetting number in that respect for some reason. I don't like yep. it. No, I'm with you. I'm not ready for it. Don't like it. <laughs> um, moving on from that, though, I am really excited about a novel called The House of Doors by Tan Tuan Eng, which is a historical novel, but it's based on real events. It's set in 1920s Penang. It's about public morality and private truth. And one of the main characters is the writer Somerset Maugham. And it just sounds so good. I heard Tuan read a little extract and uh, it's sold. I'm sold. I can't wait to read it. Sounds great. What's your first? My first is Fire Rush by Jacqueline Crooks, which is out in March from Jonathan Cape. And I've heard the most wonderful things about this debut novel, which is set in 1970s London. It's about dub, reggae, love, loss, and freedom. Yes. I mean, how much better can you get? And it's kind of, it's a kind of a love story, but it's all about underground music. Sounds great. Sounds like just the kind of uplifting thing I want. Yeah. Um, how about you? What's your next? Next is um, a book called Arrangements in Blue by the poet Amy Key. And this is actually memoir rather than poetry. And I just love the conceit. So she uses Joni Mitchell's album, Blue, which isn't an album that I grew up listening to. I know for a lot of people, it has this incredibly sort of talismanic um, status. It doesn't for me. I'm not someone who, I'm not a huge Joni Mitchell listener, even though I think she's wonderful. Um, But anyway, Amy uses that album as the anchor for the book. And I, I just, first of all, think that's a wonderfully inspired idea. Um, and then it's, it's a book that's described as exploring the painful feelings we are usually too ashamed to discuss, loneliness, envy, grief, and failure. Um, and I'm all here for discussing things that we have historically been ashamed to talk about. Um, and I also really love Amy's poetry, so I'm excited to see what she does with this, with this new form. Yeah, that is a book represented by my colleague Ange. And I've read some of it and it's incredible. And she writes so compellingly about romantic love and its absence and what that means. It's, it feels really revelatory. It's wonderful. And, and um, if you want a little taste, she wrote um, the essay, it's, it kind of comes out of, was in Granta. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. But I can't, I can't wait to read the rest of it. Great. What's your next one? My next one is a novel called Nothing Special by Nicole Flattery, which is out in March from Bloomsbury. And I really like this Irish writer's short stories. She's an incredible crafter of words. And I'm very intrigued by this novel, which is about a girl working in Andy Warhol's factory and um, recording the things that go on there. So um, good writer, intriguing prospect. I'm in. Yeah, fun and also wild setting. Yes. Yes, into it. (laughs) What's your next one? My next one is a book called Porn, an Oral History by Polly Barton, which sounds just completely fascinating to me. So it's based around 20 conversations with people from a total massive range of ages and backgrounds. And it's about everything and anything related to porn. It's about their habits, their feelings, prejudices, desires, literally the whole deal. And it kind of came out of Polly's observation that there is still a weird taboo about this thing that impacts so many of our lives, you know, uh, and, and a strange silence, a vacuum of silence almost around it. So I cannot wait to read it. Do you know that's another book represented by my colleague Ange? Ange has great taste. Yeah, you guys are <laughs> simpatico. 
She also yeah. listens to the show, so she's going to be very and excited about this. When can we meet? <laughs> <laughs> What's your next one? Um, my next one is a book called Saving Time by Jenny O'Dell, which is out in April from The Bodley Head. And I'm extremely biased because I'm the UK co-agent for this book. Um, Jenny is an American writer who lives on the West Coast. But I genuinely think it's a revelatory book about how we think about time and use time and how we can get out of the cycle of the equation of time equals money. So it's very anti-capitalist, Octavia, as you'll be excited to learn. Um, but but Jenny wrote a book called How to Do Nothing, which if you haven't read, I really recommend picking up as well. Um, she thinks about what we do in our lives and how we relate to art and to the world in really wonderful, interesting ways. So I can't wait for that book to be out in the world. That sounds very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your last book that you're looking forward to? My last one is also, I'm very biased because um, this is a book written by a dear friend of mine, but it's called Alone um, by Daniel Schreiber. And Daniel's a really big deal in Germany. He's a brilliant, brilliant writer, but I haven't, haven't been able to read any of his books because they haven't been translated. And this one I have been excitedly waiting for this translation ever since um, the book was published in Germany last year. It's a massive acclaim. In German, it's called Allein. I'm, I may be saying that wrong. And I've been sent a sneak peek of the translation. And it has honestly, it's only made me more excited. Daniel's style is really, it's a bit like, I mean, it's like he is in conversation. I've been lucky to be in conversation with Daniel for years now. And he, you know, is this erudite, but very intimate voice. It's a book that sort of combines criticism and personal writing in quite an essayistic style. But this book was meant to be a book about friendship and it ended up being a book about being alone really um, and digging into this tension between the need to retreat and then the need for closeness and the need for community, which is my God, something I identify with intensely strongly. <laughs> um, but I just can't wait. I, I, I really, really can't wait to read it. It's coming next year from Reaction Books and I urge you all to keep your eyes out for it. Cool. Sounds great. Yeah, I think you'd love his writing. Really do. What's your last one? My last one is a book called The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder by David Gran, which is which is out in May from Simon and Schuster. David Gran is the author of Killers of the Flower Moon and a number of other really wonderful books. He also writes for The New Yorker. And I will read anything he writes, and he genuinely could make a person staring at a wall interesting. I mean, he just, he's a wonderful writer, and he finds the most amazing stories over and over. So I'm sure this will be in the same vein. But it it also does sound like a really intriguing story about a shipwreck and um, the trial that kind of determined what happened on it. Um, So it's a legal thriller as well as, you know, a, a, a shipwreck and a mutiny and all, all the juicy elements of interesting historical investigations. That sounds fascinating and quite an unlikely subject matter for you. I know, but it's David Grant, I'm telling you. I'll yeah. read anything he writes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, that is our year in review, 2023. Here we come. 2023, here we come. 2022, goodbye. Sayonara. Yeah. Happy holidays, everybody. Whatever Happy you celebrate. <laughs> Hope Uncle Joe likes his bag of books. Yeah. He, he's going to learn a lot. He's he came a long way since last year, I think, yeah. actually. Yeah. He read The Transgender Issue. It shifted his opinions, which was great. 
Yeah, and now he's looking for a big book of philosophy from Octavia Bright. So <laughs> that's right. He's going to get it. He's going to get some Donna Haraway and a split. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he might like the split anyway. Um, thanks to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast. It downloads on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and also on Instagram. You can as well get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. Also, if you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a massive difference. It helps us reach new listeners and we would love you forever for it. We would love you forever. We'll be back soon with a mini-sode and then a rerun at the end of December. And then a brand spanking new show in January that we're really looking forward to. So until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction Year in Review 2022.